So, go for your Bibles. Um, we come tonight to the last study in the third phase of this series. We're doing future salvation, and tonight we come to the last study in that phase of it. The last time we were looking at the marriage of the church to the Lamb, we've seen the rapture, how the church is taken to heaven at the rapture for seven years while the great tribulation is happening on earth. We stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive rewards, etc., etc., and it ends up with the actual marriage of the Lamb. And in Revelation 19, you've got from verses 9 to 10 is the actual, the angel said to me, write this, this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, alright, the marriage takes place from verse 11 to the end of Revelation 19, you have there the second coming, we return with Jesus at the second coming, and what we're going to look at tonight is the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ, everybody's part in it, type of society it is and then we're going to take it right through to the end and into the eternal state so then if you go to revelation and chapter 20 and we're going to start at verse 1 and john says then i saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain now of course you'll remember the bottomless pit was tartarus and he sees the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be loosed for a little while. And that what we're going to see here is that at the second coming, Jesus establishes his kingdom, but first, Satan and all the evil spirits are cast into Tartarus in the centre of the earth. Now go to Isaiah, and I'll show you this in the Old Testament. Isaiah, and if you find chapter 24, remembering that the millennium, the thousand year reign of Jesus, is eventually God fulfilling all his promises to Israel, because Jesus will be ruling from Jerusalem. And Isaiah 24, first of all, We'll have a start from verse 1. Behold, the Lord will lay waste the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly laid waste and utterly despoiled. For the Lord has spoken his word. Now there's the great tribulation. If you go to verse 9. The earth is utterly broken, the earth is rent asunder, the earth is violently shaken. All these are the events of the Great Tribulation. And then in verse 
uh, verse 21, on that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will be punished. Now can you see who are the host of heaven? That is Satan and the evil spirits. And as we've seen in another study here a few years ago, Satan actually gets kicked out of heaven during the tribulation. And here we see that the host of heaven is going to be punished in heaven and then gathered together as prisoners in a pit. There you have the binding of Satan and evil spirits cast down into Tartarus at the beginning of the thousand year reign of Christ. So then, we have <clears throat> the second coming. We have Jesus um, throwing Satan and all the evil spirits down into Tartarus. There is now no more demonic influence on the earth. Now, what we've got to see is now to have a look at the personnel. From the second coming onwards, who are the personnel involved in the thousand year reign of Christ? Well, firstly, we've got Jesus. And we've got us, the church, in resurrection bodies, all right? Remembering that we come with Jesus because we are his bride. And it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the reception that kicks off the thousand-year reign of Christ. So there's Jesus and there is us, the church, in resurrection bodies. Now, we've seen in past studies that the second coming is also the point where Old Testament saints are raised from the dead along with all the believers who got killed during the tribulation. All right. So they are now raised from the dead as well. All right. So they are there. And of course, because they've been raised from the dead, they have glorified bodies as well. Now you remember all the unbelievers alive at the second coming, they are killed by Jesus at the second coming. So there are no unbelievers. There you've got the judgment of the sheep and the goats where all the unbelievers are separated and they're killed. Alright? So then we've got Jesus and we've got us the church in resurrection bodies. You've got the Old Testament saints and you've got the Christians, the believers who were killed during the tribulation. And all those groups have got glorified bodies. Now then, there's only one group of people left, and that are the Jewish and the Gentile Christians who survived the Great Tribulation and were alive at the Second Coming. Now they are still mortal. They will be then as we are now. They're not glorified because they haven't died yet. They're alive. They are mortal. And what happens is that they go through into the thousand-year reign of Christ and they repopulate the earth. And apart from some rather profound differences, as we're going to see as we go through this study, life will carry on much as, norm as normal. But the point is, at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ, you have only got believers alive on the earth. Now, you remember in past studies, we saw the principle of God's judgment that it's unbelievers who are taken and it's believers who are left, you see. So that like in the days of Noah, 
Noah and his family were left, the unbelieving world was taken. Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family, who were saved, were left, and it was the unbelievers who were taken. So that now, unbelievers are taken, and you've got only believers on the face of the earth, some glorified, and some still mortal. And the important point to notice now is that at the beginning of this thousand-year reign of Jesus, if there are any of those believers who haven't been baptized in the Spirit, they are all baptized in the Spirit now. And all those mortal believers receive a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit. If you go to Joel chapter 2, the prophecy of Joel towards the end of the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, and we'll read verse 30 and verse 32. And it says this, I will give portents in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now here, portents in heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke, that is the second coming. That is the prophecy of the second coming. Now go to the verses immediately before, 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Even upon the men servants and maidservants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And the thing to notice is that the prophecy here is that everyone alive is going to have the Holy Spirit poured out on them. Can you see? So as these believers enter the thousand year reign of Christ, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of them. The entire mortal population of the earth are now baptized in the Holy Spirit. But go to Acts 2, because you may be wondering why it is that Peter preached this on the day of Pentecost. Because you see, the thing about that prophecy of Joel is that it has not been fulfilled. On the day of Pentecost, the prophecy of Joel was not fulfilled. I ask you, was the Spirit poured out on all flesh at Pentecost? But of course it wasn't. It was poured out on 120 believers. Okay, so we've got to ask the question, at Pentecost, when the church is baptised in the Spirit, if you go to chapter 2 and verse... Uh, 16 this is peter preaching but this is what was spoken by the prophet joel and then he goes on to quote the prophecy from joel now why is peter doing this was the holy spirit poured out in all flesh no it wasn't this prophecy will be fulfilled at the second coming so why does peter refer to it the thing you've got to understand is this peter preached this sermon to jews to israel now, during this series, we have seen that it was always God's intention that should Israel have received Jesus as Messiah at his first coming, the kingdom would have been established then. And the reign of Christ on earth would have started 2,000 years ago. But you see, because Israel rejected 
Jesus. Therefore, God said, instead of you having the kingdom now, I'm going to bring in the Gentile church to replace you. And we are now replacing Israel until the time that they are grafted back in and the kingdom can then be established on earth. But the point is this that you have to bear in mind. On the day of Pentecost, what should have been happening in God's ultimate plan A was that Israel should have received Jesus as their Messiah and the kingdom should have been set up there and then. But it wasn't set up. God always knew it wouldn't be. Instead of receiving the kingdom here on the day of Pentecost, Israel is receiving judgment. And although we haven't time to go into it now, although we've done it in earlier studies in this course, in the Old Testament, do you know what one of the signs was to Israel that they were under God's judgment? I'll tell you, it was foreign languages. And that is why at Pentecost, the church, they spoke in tongues. Because what should have been happening at Pentecost was the Jewish kingdom being established. But they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. The kingdom was taken to them and given to Gentiles. Therefore, Peter is preaching this prophecy from Joel. Having demonstrated to them, because they all spoke in tongues, the Jews understood exactly what Peter was saying to them. He is saying, you have been rejected, the kingdom is now not coming yet, and the sign to you is that we have spoken in tongues. Alright, now that is the reason that Peter quotes the prophecy of Joel at the time of Pentecost. But of course at the second coming, Israel are grafted back in, they receive Jesus as their Messiah, so now the kingdom is established, so therefore this prophecy of Joel is now literally fulfilled. And all the inhabitants of the earth at the beginning of Jesus' reign are all baptised in the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to move on and we're going to look at the type of, you know, what's going to happen to this world in the thousand year reign of Christ and the type of society. First of all, the actual planet, the earth. Now what we're going to see is that in actual fact, the effects of the fall in Genesis are undone at the second coming of Jesus. You see, because when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened was, God created them and he gave them dominion over nature. Adam and Eve had authority over the earth, over nature. They were under authority, God's authority, therefore they had delegated authority over nature. That is why when Adam named the animals, they all walked up to him to be named. Adam and Eve could tell the animals what to do and they got instant response. Absolutely no problem, because nature was absolutely in harmony with man, because man was absolutely in harmony with God. But you see, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and came out from being under God's authority, part of the judgment that came upon them through the effects of sin is that nature now rebelled against God, uh, against man. Can you see, man rebelled against his master, now nature rebels against its master. And that from the fall onwards, man has had a struggle 
against the very planet that we live on. And it climaxed in the flood of Noah, because the, the face of the earth, as it existed before the flood, was totally and 100% changed by that flood that was absolutely worldwide. And that what happens now that Jesus begins his rule on earth is that the planet is restored to the condition it was in before the flood of Noah. Alright, so at the second coming, when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth, the effects that the fall had on the planet are now reversed. Alright, the reason being that everyone living on the planet now are in submission to God. They're all believers. Therefore, because mankind is now under God's authority, nature now returns to being under man's authority and becomes friendly to him rather than hostile, because at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ, the human race is friendly and not hostile towards God. But what I want to show you now is something quite incredible, because I'm going to show you what it is that actually triggers off this miraculous reshaping of our planet. And it will be a total miraculous reshaping of the entire planet. Go to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8. And find, verse 18, Paul says, <clears throat> I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. In actual fact, that Greek word could quite fairly be translated entropy. The wise will know. I refer you back to a tape that we did earlier on in the series. And he says, The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to, to decay, now, it's the bondage to decay in nature that is undone at the second coming. But look what it is that undoes that bondage. He says that uh, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning in travail until now. Nature is crying out to be restored to how it used to be. And not only the creatures, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, can you see that what nature is longing for is the freedom of the sons of God? What happens when Jesus returns at the second coming? Who comes with him? The church, all right? Who else is there? The Old Testament and tribulation saints in glorified bodies. You now have countless millions of people as glorious as Jesus himself. That is what the revealing of the sons of God are. We will then be absolutely like Jesus. We will have received the full inheritance. 
we will or it will be like having millions of Jesus and of Jesus's and in the presence of such glory decay flees from the universe and the earth is restored to its former beauty and that is going to happen not just because Jesus is revealed in all his glory but because we are going to be revealed in all his glory as well because millions of millions of us will be sharing that glory of Jesus and have glorified resurrection bodies just like he does so the earth is restored to how it was before the fall of man and before the flood go to Isaiah 35 and let's have a look at a change or two that happens actually in the land of Israel because remember Jesus will actually be governing the earth himself from from Israel in uh, from Jerusalem, the holy city. And in Isaiah 35, and you'll begin to see how many, many passages in the Old Testament are in actual fact descriptive prophecies of the thousand-year reign of Christ, of the kingdom of God. First of all, Isaiah 35, verse 1 and 2. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Well, because Jesus is now on earth personally, the deserts all become fertile. Why? The land the, has been restored to how it was before we fell. But go over now to verse 51. Chapter 51, rather. And verse 3. For the Lord will comfort Zion, and both these things that we've read are pertaining to the land of Israel. For the Lord will comfort Zion, he will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. And joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice and song of song. And what actually happens now is that the entire land of Israel is made exactly like the Garden of Eden was. It is restored now to the exact beauty that was once in the actual garden of Eden. Go to Zechariah 14 and we'll see something else that happens in Israel as well. Because you have to understand the changes that happen on the face of the earth are incredible at the beginning of the, the reign of Jesus. Zechariah 14 and verse 8 to 10. On that day a living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea it shall continue in summer as in winter and the Lord will become king over all the earth Jesus reigning on that day the Lord will be one and his name one the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to to Rimmon south of Jerusalem but Jerusalem shall remain aloft upon its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses and what happens now are two things this thing about sort of um, these sort of waters that flow out from the city it's spring water and Jerusalem now it's turned into a seaport but not a seaport of salt water, but of spa water. 
Also, the whole land of Israel becomes flat with only Jerusalem on top of a hill, the holy mountain of God, Zion, the holy mountain of God. So that from hundreds of miles around you can see Jerusalem raised up because that is where Jesus lives. God's holy mountain is established and the rest of the land will be absolutely flat. Let's have a look at lifespan. Go to Isaiah 65, and you understand that rather than going into any one aspect in great detail, it's a real dippy-dippy tonight, just to give you an idea. Because in actual fact, we're going to see now that the long lifespan that was lost as a result of sin and then vanished completely after the flood of Noah is now restored during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Isaiah 65 and verse 20, listen to this. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his, his or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the child shall die a hundred years old. And what this is saying here, that in the thousand year reign of Christ, to be a hundred years old is, well, you're still a chicken. You're hardly out of your egg, you know? Because that, I mean, remember in the Old Testament, in the chapters of Genesis, they were living for a thousand years odd. And that what we're going to see is that except for capital punishment and murder, and we're going to come on to that in a short while, except for people who are murdered and except for people who are put to death through capital punishment, everyone alive at the thousand-year reign of Christ when it starts, including all those who are born subsequently, everyone will outlive the thousand-year reign of Christ. Even death is beaten back in the presence of the sons of God. All right. So then, except for those two clauses, everyone will outlive that thousand-year reign of Christ, and to be a hundred years old will be you're still a baby, still a chicken in the egg. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Much of Isaiah, to say nothing of other books in the Old Testament, are descriptions of the eventual kingdom of God. Let's see what happens to the animals. Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them there'll be no more carnivorous animals. They'll all be herbivorous again. And they will have no killer instinct at all. Because once more, they are in subjection to man. And that little children will have lions for pets. Won't that be gorgeous? They'll have lions for pets. The cow and the bear shall feed. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. You see? carnivorous animals aren't going to eat meat anymore. They're all going to return to being herbivores. The sucking child shall play over the whole of the asp. In actual fact, it says asp there, but in the Hebrew word it's a cobra, one of the most deadly and vicious of snakes. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And that's not an adder like in Britain, it's a puff adder. Can you see, snakes are no longer going to be 
poisonous. So can you see once more the animal kingdom, like the rest of nature, is now completely tame and absolutely harmless. No longer antagonistic to man, but under man's authority, because the human race is now no longer antagonistic to God, but under his authority. Now, we're going to move on now, and we're going to ask, what kind of government is there going to be during the thousand-year reign of Christ? And you see, I'm going to tell you as well why a government is needed. You see, at the start of Jesus reigning on the earth, everyone are baptised in the Spirit believers, all right? But nevertheless, they, as we now, because remember, they're mortal, they will be then as we are now. They still have a sin nature. Also, their children who are born will be like children are today. You're not born a Christian. Therefore, the children have absolute free will to grow up unbelievers and in rebellion against Jesus if they so wish. Therefore, there has got to be government on the earth during that time. Go to Micah. Micah in the Old Testament. It's one of those books that I can never find. I have found it. How about that? Micah, chapter 4, and verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. We've already seen that. It shall be raised up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the, law from, word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations afar off. Now, can you see there that there has got to be government because man is still sinful and Jesus is going to rule the earth with a rod of iron? We will discover that Jesus, when confronted by crime and things like that, social disorder, he is no liberal whatsoever, that he will rule with a rod of iron. Go um, also, you'll find that exact same prophecy repeated in Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, go to Zechariah, back to Zechariah 14. And we'll see more of this. Zechariah 14 and verse 16. Then, Zechariah 14 verse 16. Then every one that survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Everyone, everyone is going to be commanded to go to Jerusalem to worship Jesus in person once a year. All right. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain upon them. And if the family of Egypt do not go up and present themselves, then upon them shall come the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations, etc., etc. So there, can you see that there is 
government and there is punishment for wrongdoing and for disobedience to the Lord. Now this therefore, seeing that there is going to be right, there is going to be law and order, it brings us to the subject of punishment for crime. Because remember, the people, even at the start of the thousand year reign of Christ, are all believers, but they are still sinners, and their children may or may not grow up to be Christians. Therefore, there are going to eventually be unbelievers on the earth. There will be crime, and therefore, there must be punishment. Now, under the Old Testament law, they didn't have jail, alright? God never prescribes jail in the Bible as being a good punishment. The punishments were fines, hard labour or death, alright? Now during the thousand year reign of Christ, punishments for crime, there'll be two types. The first type will be making mandatory animal sacrifices. And the second one is capital punishment for offences which merit that. Now let me say something about the animal sacrifices. In Ezekiel from 40 to 48, you have the vision of the restored temple in the thousand year reign of Christ. That temple will have been built during the great tribulation. All right. But you see, the thing is that animal sacrifices are prophesied to be going on at this time. Now, a lot of people think, but that's crazy. Why would God institute the sacrificial system again after the death of Jesus? Well, the answer is this. The sacrificial system will be reinstituted, not to forgive sin, because the death of Jesus has dealt with that. But animal sacrifice will be one of the punishments for sin. It won't be a means of it being forgiven. It will be the punishment, the same as being fined or going to jail. And think about it. It is not pleasant. And remember that even though evil, as we will see, will start to reappear on the earth, it won't be the kind of hardened evil that is so prevalent today, because Satan is for the thousand years locked down in Tartarus alright now then most people will find it most unpleasant to take an animal in their hands and to cut its throat now that is what people are going to have to do for crime now that is going to remind them of the seriousness of their crime so for offences which don't merit death it appears that the animal sacrifices, that is going to be what you're going to have to do. You sacrifice, you kill an innocent animal, and that is the punishment and the deterrent for carrying on doing that crime. Because remember, with Satan gone, they won't be the bloodthirsty lot that we are today, you see. So that is going to be quite, I mean, it's, that will be hard enough for some of us to do. What would you rather have, 30 days inside or kill a dog? I know what I'd rather have. Can you see, it's going to be the best deterrent and punishment at that time in human history. But also, there is going to be capital punishment for certain offences. Go to Zechariah. Zechariah 13. And in Zechariah chapter 13, we read this. <clears throat> Verse 2 and 3. 
And on that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the unclean spirits. And anyone who again appears as a prophet, because remember there will be no more prophets. Well, of course there won't, because Jesus is there himself, you see. And if, if anyone again appears as a prophet, which would mean they were a false prophet, all right, okay, his mother and father who bore him will say, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. Now, as we're seeing here, we're going to see that during the thousand-year reign of Christ, capital punishment is going to be for two offences. It's going to be for murder, and it's going to be for idolatry. The reason being that, remember, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, you at last have what Israel should always have been, a theocracy. There's not a kind of an elected government. Jesus is the king of the earth. Therefore, if you think about it, idolatry, or going off after false gods, is treason. Can you see? And it's interesting, even in our country, treat, you can still be hanged in our country for treason. Can you see? So nations accept, I mean, that treason is a capital, a capital offence, alright? And of course idolatry during the thousand year reign of Christ is treason to the government of the day, you see. If you go back to, uh, go back to Micah, No, not Micah, sorry, Isaiah 65. I gave you the wrong one. Isaiah 65. And this is back to the verses we saw about long lifespan. Alright, Isaiah 65 and verse 20. We've seen, no more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days. Uh, but we read, for the child shall die a hundred years old, alright, so saying that if you're a hundred years old and you die, that is, you know, sort of like a child dying, and the sinner a hundred years old <laughs> shall be accursed. Now, what that is saying there is that anyone who fails to make it to be a hundred years old is someone who has been accursed, he's been put to death, either for murder or idolatry. Can you see that? So we're simply establishing that in the government of the thousand-year reign of Christ, there will be punishment for crime. All right. Okay, now then, go to Isaiah chapter 2. I'm just trying to give you a quick, an overview, if you like, of the type of world that this is going to be during the reign of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 He shall judge between the nations and shall decide for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And if you go to Micah, back to Micah again. Sorry about this, but it's an all-over-the-place affair, as usual. Micah chapter 4, verse 3. 
and we see exactly the same thing. Nations shatter, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And that in actual fact, during the thousand year reign of Christ, weapons spending will all be spent on agriculture. The dream of disarmament will come true during the thousand year reign of Christ. Now, I want to say that these verses, they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Some people who believe that man is heading for a utopia, you know, that we're going to change the world ourselves, they say that eventually we are going to be able to disarm the world, all right? And they quote these verses. Now, if you go back to Joel chapter 3, Joel chapter 3, And Joel chapter 3, dealing with the period of time before the second coming. Joel chapter 3 and verse 9. It says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Oh, I've got the wrong one there. Where's the one that I want? Joel chapter 3. Ah, oh, chapter 4. All right. Oh, so I'm, I've got Micah. Sorry, I've opened it at Micah again. I'm getting so confused. Hang on. Joel. I'll find it in a minute. Joel 3. Yeah, we want Joel 3. I can't find Can someone read Joel 3 verse 9? Joel has vanished from my Bible. Someone, Joel 3. Oh, I've got it. Okay. Joel 3 verse 9. All right. And this is sort of dealing with the time before the second coming. And it says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. The truth of the matter is, there will never be disarmament before the second coming. And we just have to understand that. And Christians who argue for sort of like disarmament, I mean, they just don't understand the situation. As long as sin and Satan are controlling our world, then arm, arms and war are going to be a reality. To say that we're going to beat them is absolutely daft. And yet, during the thousand-year reign of Christ, there will be no war, and you have absolute disarmament worldwide. Let's have a look now at the structure of the government. All right, We've seen that there will be rule and we've seen that there's punishment for crime, etc. So let's see, how is this government going to be made up? Right, first of all, you've got Jesus. Jesus is at the top. All right, He's number one. He is ruling the earth from Jerusalem. And remember, the thousand-year reign of Christ, this is at last the kingdom of God, established on earth, all right? It's also what Satan was seeking to counterfeit during the Great Tribulation. What does Satan do? Well, what will Satan do then? Set up a man to rule the world on Satan's behalf. In the thousand-year reign of Christ, Jesus, as God and man, is ruling the world. Can you see? So at last, God is absolutely and actually in charge. So Jesus at the top. Then, you've got us, the church. Go to Revelation. Revelation and chapter 2. And verse 26. 
Jesus says, He who conquers or he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. Now, we saw a couple of studies ago that that overcomes is Nikaio, and in John's epistle, he says, who is it that overcomes the world but he who believes in Jesus? The same word. So this is simply another way, an overcomer is simply another name for a believer. All right? So he who conquers, he who is a Christian, and who keeps my works till the end, I will give him power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. But that's exactly what we've seen Jesus is going to do. Well, we are going to be doing it with Jesus. Go over to chapter 3, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So can you see, we are absolutely, as the church, sharing the rule of Jesus during his thousand-year reign. Go to 2 Timothy. The second epistle of Timothy. Or rather, Paul's second letter to Timothy. Chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, we saw this verse showing that at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be rewarded according to our faithfulness down here. And that the reward is partially going to be authority during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now go down to verse 11. The saying is sure, if we died with him, we shall live with him. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Alright? But look at this next bit. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now some people say this is a verse saying that you can lose your salvation. It can't possibly be. Go on to verse 13. It says if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So it can't mean that. What it means is that if we are not faithful to Jesus, firstly he'll deny us all the blessings of, of our inheritance down here. But also, if we're unfaithful to Jesus here, he will deny us authority in the thousand-year reign of Christ. So can you see that? So what we've established when we did our study in the judgment seat of Christ is that the extent of authority that we are given during the thousand-year reign of Christ will have been determined at the judgment seat of Christ which will be determining our faithfulness now in our present life. The truth of the matter is that during the thousand-year reign of Jesus, we'll all be there and we'll all be glorified, but the extent of the authority that you are given will be absolutely decided by the extent to which you are actually living under God's authority here and now. All right? And that I think that probably what's going to happen is that, shall we say, and I think this probably isn't true, but I like it, it's a good idea, the faithful believers, they're going to get the choice bits. Alright? They're, they're going to get Miami. I've put in for Florida. But can you see that some unbelievers are unfaithful? They fall away. It doesn't mean they've lost their salvation, but it does mean that during the thousand-year reign of Christ, someone's got to be ruling over Harold Hill. Or Neeson, or Camden. Can you see? Anyway, I've put in for, 
you know, Florida, so I'll be all right there. However, there is one part of the Earth that has already been designated, all right? There is one part of the Earth that we're now going to see exactly who are going to be ruling over it. Go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 verse 27. Now look at this. Peter said, Lo, we've left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? Now this is Peter talking on behalf of the twelve disciples. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, well, which glorious throne is this in the new world? It's the restored world, the thousand-year reign of Christ. The throne is in Jerusalem, all right? You who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, remember, we've done it here before in earlier studies, not in this series, but yonks ago. Remember, Judas fell away, and we'll be looking at Judas in a couple of uh, sort of studies time, Judas fell away and was replaced by Paul as the twelfth apostle. The twelve apostles, with Judas having been replaced by Paul, they are going to be ruling with Jesus over the land of Israel. Alright? Israel has been designated. And who better than the twelve apostles to be doing it? And look at their faithfulness as well. They richly have been deserving that. Go to Luke, Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 28. And again, this is Jesus speaking to the... Um, Twelve apostles. He says, You are those who have continued with me in my trials. As my father appointed a kingdom for me. Well, what was the kingdom he appointed? A thousand year reign of Christ. Alright? So do I appoint one for you. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there you have it. The twelve disciples, Judas having been replaced by Paul, remember who called himself an apostle born out of time, they will be ruling over Israel. But isn't it lovely to know as well that in our resurrection bodies we'll be able to sit and eat and drink at table with Jesus. Remember what I told you, the millennium kicks off with the marriage supper of the Lamb. The whole thing kicks off with a party, you see. We will be eating and drinking in our glorified bodies. I am so glad. I won't have to watch the old calories either. I mean, that, that really is a good bit of news. All right. Now then, go to Matthew 26. There's just one other thing that I want to show you here. Because remember, when Jesus rose again from the dead with his glorified body, he ate and drank, and so will we. But in Matthew 26, verse 26, look at this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink all of it, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, etc., poured out for many. Verse 29. Now, this was Jesus instituting the love feast in the church. Not a communion service. I'm sorry, communion services are totally unscriptural. The Bible doesn't speak about them in any way at all. Jesus instituted it at the Passover meal. The early church simply met together to have meals 
and there they celebrated the fact that Jesus was amongst them, food, eating together, being the Jewish way of saying we are really having fellowship, and accepting and proclaiming that they were having fellowship because of what Jesus had done for them, alright? But this is Jesus actually saying to them, keep, keep the Passover feast going, but not as the Passover feast, but as the love feast in the church. But look at this. I tell you, I shall not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Here is Jesus at the Last Supper having a meal and drinking wine with them. Alright? He says, he puts the cup down and he says, that's the last drink of wine I am going to have until I drink wine with you again in my Father's kingdom. When will Jesus drink wine with disciples in the Father's kingdom? At the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here is Jesus saying, right lads, that's it, my last glass of wine, my last physical proper meal with you, we won't be doing this again until everyone else is in or and saved and will be celebrating it when I'm ruling on the earth for a thousand years. So can you see, the thousand year reign of Christ is the next time that Jesus is referring to on that particular occasion. So, we've seen that the twelve disciples, they get Israel. They are ruling out of, uh, over Israel. But, so does someone else. Go to Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah 30. Who else gets to rule over Israel? When you read this, you'll say, of course, it has to be, doesn't it? Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. There is the great tribulation. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break the yoke from off their neck, and will burst their bonds, and strangers shall no more make servants of them. Here's the second coming, and the kingdom being restored to Israel. Look at this. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Remember we've seen at the second coming, at the beginning of the thousand year reign of Christ, that's when all the Old Testament saints get raised from the dead, which means King David now gets raised from the dead as well, and he, with the twelve disciples, rules over Israel during the thousand year reign of Christ. Alright. So, thus far, we've got this. We've got Jesus reigning on the earth, and we've got the church reigning on the earth as well as his bride, alright? Now, because we as the church are his bride, we've got Jesus the king, and we've got his queen. That's us. So, in Jesus and the church, we are going to be the royal family ruling over the entire earth, alright? Now, we've seen that King David has popped his head up. He's got into the act now as an Old Testament guy, all right? But the only people left now are the tribulation martyrs. Where do they fit in? Go to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verse 4 and verse 6. <clears throat> I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom judgment was 
committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus. These are them, the tribulation martyrs. And for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast and had not received its mark on their foreheads. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. Remember, second death, lake of fire. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. So the believers who die during the tribulation as well, they are ruling on the earth. So the government, okay, let's go through it, the personnel, Jesus, the church. The Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, all the believers who were alive at the second coming, they are the population on earth. They are the people actually being governed. So what we've got is this. In the government, and remember this is a theocracy, God is king, Jesus is king, alright? So you've got King Jesus and you've got the church, his queen, you've got the royal family. They have ultimate authority. But under them, all royal families have their ministers of government. And the ministers of government are the Old Testament saints and the tribulation martyrs. Alright? So, there you have it. The thousand year reign of Christ. An idea of the changes that take place. A little idea of the kind of, you know, how life is going to be and the structure of the government and the part that each person plays in it. But, in Revelation 20, go to 3, verse 3 and the second part. We saw that at the beginning of this thousand years, Satan and all the evil spirits are thrown into Tartarus. But look at this. After that, hang on, he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be loosed for a little while. Go down to verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be loosed from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth. And then what happens is that he gets an army of, you know, sort of human beings and he sets them up and they literally, this great army marches up to Jerusalem with the sole intent of killing Jesus. All right. Now the question is, why? Why is Satan released? Remember, by the end of the thousand years, you've now got millions and millions of people because the earth has been repopulated again for a thousand years. And remember, there's no more you know, natural disasters or anything like that, so people are going to live for years. So the earth is really in a population explosion. Now remember, although the people who started that population explosion off were Christians, their children may or may not have become Christians. That would be up to their kids. So therefore, you've now got unbelievers on the earth as well. And now, what happens is that Satan is released, and immediately the unbelievers are deceived, and they actually declare war on Jesus. But why? Why is it that God allows this to happen? It seems to be, well, it just doesn't seem right does it? But there's a very important reason that God lets Satan out of Tartarus for a while. Do you remember in the parable of the rich man and the beggar, and they die, and the beggar was a believer and he goes down into paradise, and the unbeliever, you know, the rich man goes down into Hades, alright? And he's sort of saying, you know, sort of like, you know, Abraham, give me sort of water to cool my tongue, 
you see. And that what he does is he says, let me return to my family, because if, if, if I can tell them what's going to happen to them, then they will believe, all right? And that the answer that he got was that if they didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that they wouldn't believe that if, if you went back to them, all right? Now, you see, there's a great temptation to think that if Jesus was here physically, like he was 2,000 years ago, that kind of the whole world would get converted, that people would just, they'd see how marvellous he is, all right? But the point is, by the end of the thousand years, you've got a humanity that has been without any temptation whatsoever from Satan, no demonic influence, a perfectly restored earth, and every year they are going up to actually see Jesus in the flesh. Every possible advantage is theirs. Yet the minute that Satan is loosed, they all turn against God. Now, can you see it's a question of demonstrating? Some people say improve social sort of conditions and there'll be less sin. Rubbish. You've got perfect social conditions here. But as soon as Satan is released, man rebels against Jesus again. So can you see it's a final demonstration of the justice of God and his holiness, but also of the sinfulness of man as well. And of course what happens is that, that this great army marches up to kill Jesus, and then what happens is that they are all killed, alright? And then Satan and all the evil spirits are cast into the lake of fire. Now what we're going to do, we're going to follow it now through to the end. So you should be in Revelation chapter 20 and now verse 11, alright? First of all, verse 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. That is the destruction of the entire universe as we know it. And again, in 1 and 2 Peter, Peter refers to that. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead in it, death and Hades gave up the dead in them, and all were judged by what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what happens is, at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, Satan is loosed again and the rebellion against Jesus happens, alright? Once that rebellion has been put down, the people who took part in it are killed, alright? Down they go into Hades. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and all the believers who are still mortal get their glorified bodies and the entire universe is destroyed. Then every unbeliever through history who has died and been in Hades, they are now raised from the dead and get glorified bodies, alright? They are then thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. And remember the horror of the lake of fire is that unbelievers will be in a literal lake of literal fire in a literal body but which cannot be killed. As... Uh, 
their skin will be burning yet constantly replenishing itself that is the torment of eternity in the lake of fire so that now alright we have the universe gone and all the unbelievers now in the lake of fire and all the believers throughout history are now all glorified with Jesus right Revelation 21 1 to 6 then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away you see because the old un this universe gets destroyed now a new universe heavens and the earth here is referring to the stars and planet earth alright and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem that's what God's home is called this is now God's home his heaven now descending down alright new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a great voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling of God is with men he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away so what happens now is that a new universe and a new planet earth is created that has to be because God created Adam and Eve to live on earth Planet Earth is our home. It's where God intended us to live, and we always will live here. It's just simply, you know, we get the odd bit of time in heaven, uh, you know, after the rapture from the point you die, but God ultimately wants us to live here on Earth. But then, heaven, the new Jerusalem, God's home, now descends and it lands on the new Earth. And it says that as it lands, it's like a, a bride adorned for her husband. And that God, it's all got ready. Who for? God? No. He was living there all the time. Who's it been got ready for? Us. Do you remember when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you? This is what he was talking about. Heaven has been absolutely prepared for us, and now it comes down, and it lands on planet earth and the eternal state is literally heaven on earth but we will all have glorified Jesus of bodies just like Jesus go on to verse 7 he who conquers shall have this heritage and I will be his God and he shall be my sons as for the cowardly the faithless they shall burn in the lake of fire. There's another reference to the lake of fire. Go on to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who have the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he, in the spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down from out of heaven. And then you get a description, all right, of what heaven is like as it's landing. But notice he says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. All right? And remember that here, at this point, the, the bride, the wife of the Lamb is the church, they are present in heaven. We are actually in heaven as it comes and lands on earth. So as the new heaven descends, we, the church, are in it. Why? Because the bride, the church, belongs with her husband, Jesus. And where he is, 
the bride ought to be. So therefore, they are now in both their homes. Because heaven, the, 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 the groom's home, is now landing on earth the bride's home. And the groom and the bride are now in both their homes at the same time. In verse 15 through to verse 21, you get a general sort of description of it. All right, we won't go into that. But verse 22, I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. So there's no need for any temple, not there. The temple is where God lives. Well, I mean, God will actually be living amongst us. Absolutely amazing. Verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. This is interesting. This new planet Earth, it will be light. There will be no darkness, but there aren't going to be a moon, and there isn't, there's not going to be a moon, and there's not going to be a sun. So where is the light going to come from? Well, Jesus said, He, I, am the light of the world. Now, one thing that puzzles people is they say Genesis chapter 1 can't be literal. It can't literally be that God created the earth in six days because it says that there was light before God created the moon and the sun and the stars. So they say it can't be true, can it? Well, it can who needs the sun and the moon and the stars for light when the Lamb of God is around? And the point is that for the first three or four days, Jesus was the light that was needed in the universe, and then the sun and the moon and the stars were created, as it were, to take over from him. But here, the light is going to be Jesus himself. No sun, no moon, no stars, anything like that. Now then, verse 22, uh, chapter 22. And just read verse, verse 1. He showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on each side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. Alright. Now, I don't know, sort of, if that reminds you of anything but showing you the river of the water of life and what well, can you see this is exactly exactly what Eden was like talks about trees whose leaves are for healing here we have it once more that paradise is now back on earth and the story of salvation is absolutely this paradise created paradise lost and paradise regained. And here, God's heaven on the new earth, alright? God's garden of Eden is in it, because God always had a garden in Eden in it. The literal garden of Eden is in it as well, and you've got the Jerusalem, the city of God, heaven, landing on earth. And this is the eternal state that God has got for us. Paradise was created, paradise was lost, but because of Jesus, we're going to get it back absolutely literally. Now go on to verse 3, and just through to verse 5. There shall no more be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall worship him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and night shall be no more. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, 
and they shall reign forever and forever. Now, what I want you to notice is this, and this is so important. It's the climax of everything that we've been leading up to in these 23-odd studies. In verse 3, his servants shall worship him. So we will be worshipping Jesus, obviously, as his servants. But having said that, go to the end of verse 5. And they, so this is we as servants, everyone now throughout history who's turned to Jesus, shall reign forever and ever. What I want you to understand is this. There is no mention or even a hint that we shall any longer be under any authority at all. In fact, quite the opposite. For eternity, we are going to reign. And to reign is the opposite of being under authority. We will have absolute rule in our own right. Now, you must understand this. You see, to be under authority imposes limits, all right? Authority structure was only ever needed for two reasons. Because originally, man was created as mortal, and man fell into sin. If you take those two things away, there is no need whatsoever for anyone to be under any authority whatsoever. Remember, at this point in the eternal state, we will all be glorified like Jesus. Even Adam and Eve, before they sinned, weren't glorified. Mankind will have gone one stage further even than Adam and Eve before they sinned. And because, one, we will not be mortal, we will be immortal and exactly like Jesus. And two, because obviously we'll be sinless, there will be no more sin in the entire universe. Therefore, there will be no need for authority in any way whatsoever. Alright. Now then, we are going to be the children of God in every possible way. What does this add up to? No authority. You are not under authority. Quite the contrary. You are actually reigning yourself. We're God's children. Is this not the child's dream? To be able to do exactly what it likes? And here we are, serving nothing and no one under no one's authority because we are now absolutely like Jesus himself we are reigning with Jesus throughout eternity we will have a new absolutely perfect universe with heaven itself slap bang in the middle of it to do exactly what we like with we won't be under authority because we will be exactly and 100% like Jesus. Therefore, there will be no reason for us to be under authority. You will be able to do exactly as you please, 
at any time because you will be exactly like Jesus and because whatever you do, Jesus will be doing it with you. And I'll tell you one of the most incredible things about the humility of God. You see, the thing is, we end up as good as being God himself. We won't be God, of course not. God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But we will be sons of God in the full sense that Jesus is, except for the difference that he is inherently God, we will have been adopted. But can you see what I mean? We will be as good as God himself, in the sense that he has shared his glory with us that totally. I'm not saying we will be God, of course not. Father will be Father, Jesus will be Jesus, the Holy Spirit will be the Holy Spirit. They alone are inherently divine. You will be you and I will be me. But we will be exactly like Jesus is. And therefore we can do what we like when we like. And, I mean, Jesus is just going to be doing it with us. Because, oh, we're just going to be absolutely like him. I mean, I can't wait. I can't wait. Can you see, even the millennium is not the eternal state. Because in the millennium, there's authority. We will have authority over the mortals, but we will be under the authority of Jesus. But you see, the point is, in the new creation, there is no sin, there is now no mortality, there are no mortals. We are all immortal, just like Jesus. Therefore, well, I mean, one can only hint at it. That's all we're doing tonight. But this is the eternal state that we are headed for. Now, one last thing. Do you remember some studies ago, we did Romans 8.28. In all things, God works together for good to them that love God and accord according to his purpose. And I said that's one of the most important verses in the Bible. Because fundamentally what it means is that as far as any believer is concerned, as far as anyone who's been born again is concerned, no matter what happens... It's going to turn out for our blessing. Even sheer, pure evil can be made a blessing by God. The power of God, you remember I said, lay in the fact that he can bring good out of evil. Now then, we are right at the end. <coughs> Cast your mind back right to the beginning. Adam and Eve, absolutely innocent, absolutely sinless, absolutely perfect in every way. And yet sin comes in. The greatest tragedy that could have been imagined. Evil sweeps the universe, taking the death of Jesus no less to undo it. All right. But the point is this. It is terrible that Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, it would have been much better if they hadn't. God didn't want them to, but they did because they had free will. But here's the point I want you to understand. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, then the world would have always been perfect. All their children would have been perfect as well. And we could possibly have been direct descendants of Adam and Eve in an unfallen state. That would be absolutely incredible. But in the eternal state, we are going to be better off than Adam and Eve were. 
Because although they were perfect, although they walked with Jesus, they were mortal. Now, in the sense, they would never have died, but they were human beings. They weren't glorified. The truth is, as a result of Adam and Eve sinning and the death of Jesus, we will actually end up glorified and will be in an even greater state of life than we would have been had sin not ever come into the world in the first place. We are actually going to be better off because sin came into the world. Because Jesus, in dying and dealing with sin, made his very nature, his very glory, available to those who responded to it. Therefore, can you see, Paul says in Romans, where sin abounds, grace does more abound. We are going to be better off because sin came into the world. Now that is Romans 8, 28, carried through right into eternity and to the eternal state. Right, that is salvation. That is what is yet to come. But there is one thing left. We have seen that the most important question in the universe is, do you have salvation? It's the most important question in the universe. Do you have salvation? But then, if that is the most important question, then the second most important question must surely be this. Can you therefore ever lose that salvation? You've got it, but can it ever be lost? And it's to that that we turn to in phase four next time.